We've been going through the series, uh, or sorry, through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We're going to take a six-week pause and do a series uh, entitled Questioning God. And the reason for this series is because we want to answer some of the questions that we think people are asking. So a lot of times the church answers questions, uh, but it's not actually answering questions that people are asking. It's answering questions that are not relevant to the world uh, around us. And you've probably had experiences with people where they've said things like that, where religion or church or following Jesus or whatever the case is, it just seems boring, irrelevant, and inconsequential to my life. That seems like a pretty normal response. And so what we said in this series is we want to actually ask some questions that we think are are significant, are relevant, that people are actually asking, that would strike a chord, if you will, uh, with those who maybe don't yet identify as followers of Jesus. And oh my goodness, did we strike a chord. Um, I don't know if you are active on social media at all, but while I was gone, uh, the staff decided to do a like a sponsored Facebook post uh, of this series, just kind of promoting it to the community. And we got lit up, like lit up like a pinata on Cinco de Maya. Like people just came and it was, they were having a field day. Like the trolls were trolling hard. I actually got, uh, I got uh, to be the one, I was picked by the staff to be the one to respond to all the trolls, which was made for an interesting week. So I just want to show you just a couple of the responses we got. These are just a couple. You can go, not right now, and read them all because then you won't pay attention to what I'm doing. But throw the first one up there, Ian. The first one is this. I can't quite read on the screen in front of me, but this is just a guy asking a question, a normal question. And then some other guy chimes in here. We, we tried to, you know, make it anonymous. And he says, you'll see about three quarters of the way down, halfway down. He says, make sure you bring cash, right? Implying that churches are all about cash. So I uh, responded, yeah, we would we would recommend bringing money as right after a gathering is done, there are movies playing that are open to the public. <laughs> Anything for a buck, too bad hell's not real because the likes of you would burn. Trollers be trolling. Okay, next one, next one, here we go. This, this one is, uh, I went to many of these seminars during my 10 plus years in the Christian cult. In case you didn't know, <laughs> that's where you are. Uh, they start out innocent enough, and then by the end, it's you better, uh, gosh darn, we, we should PG that up, uh, well, believe everything we be- believe about God, and if you don't, God will smite you right after we do. What a racket. Uh, thanks for your engagement on our post. We are so sorry you had such a horrible experience. That is certainly not our intent here. We are a very wide and diverse community who are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Have an awesome day. I should have put a smiley face there. Uh, last one is this, uh, faith is an F word. Uh, No one should turn off their reasonable brain to make lame excuses to believe in something as ridiculous as a deity. Amen, Chris says. You are speaking our language. We couldn't agree more. We'll be dealing with that question on September 15th. Perhaps worth coming to check out or at least grabbing the podcast. Have a terrific day. Don't go on there and start, you know, yeah, please just... I'll respond on behalf of the church. Um, but we, we, we feel like there's good questions to ask that people actually are seeking answers to. Now, these people, I, I would say generally, I don't want to speak for them. I don't know their hearts. I don't know their intent. Maybe they were just bored, having fun. Uh, who knows? Uh, but the, the trolls, generally speaking, are, are not necessarily the people that we are aiming this series at. This series is more aimed at the average person who lives in Victoria, who would probably identify as having some kind of faith background, some kind of religious belief, spiritual belief, if you will, because my guess is most people, and this is my experience as well, most people actually believe in some kind of God, some kind of supernatural reality. They hold some kind of belief. They're not 
uh, they're not hostile to the idea that the world is more than, than just the physical stuff that we can touch, taste, see, and smell. You know, we, we often refer to these people as the SBNR, spiritual but not religious. They're, they're not anti-God. They're not anti-belief uh, in a supernatural. They, they might be done with uh, institutional church as they define it or institutional religion, but, but the idea of faith, the idea of belief, these are not ideas that are foreign to them. And so what we want to do in this series is answer some of the questions. So I brought this card up with me. You probably have seen some of these questions. I'll just give you a rundown on the questions we're going to answer. This morning, we're going to answer the question, isn't religion going away? And then next week, isn't religion based on faith and secularism based on evidence? On the 22nd, we're going to answer the question, is it possible to hold convictions without oppressing others? On the 29th, we're, we're going to ask the question, why can't I live as I see fit as long as I don't harm anyone? On the 6th of October, is there any way to make sense of the pain and suffering in life? And then on the 13th, is it reasonable to believe in Christianity? And so really what we want to do is we want to just say, we think most people have some kind of faith, some kind of belief, some kind of uh, reality that defines their world. This is what we call a worldview. And we just want to like test the rigors of it. We just want to talk about it. We want to ask hard questions. We want to do that of our worldview as followers of Jesus, but we also want to do that of the worldview of others. So that's the six weeks. Encourage you, invite a friend out, invite people to come. And if there's a question on there that, that piques somebody's interest, invite them to come with you. And we are going to jump into this morning's question. So this morning's question is, isn't religion going away? Isn't religion going away? You saw a whole bunch of the quotes beforehand, and there's kind of this sediment that has been in our world for, for some time, that since the dawn of the Enlightenment, that the, the, the reality of religion, the reality of belief in a God is going to eventually go away. That as we become more sophisticated in our scientific understanding, as we become more rational in our philosophical understanding, that the need for a God is eventually going to be gone. In other words, we're going to become too smart to believe these Bronze Age myths. And again, while that might be sort of a, an intellectual understanding of the position, I, I think there's some people who probably feel that personally. Like I have lots of friends who I spend time with who, who don't know Jesus, and this would be their understanding of how religion works. I mean, just think about the average person that you spend time with. They probably feel like religion has no bearing on their life, and it's irrelevant, probably boring. And if they imagine what's happening inside of a church on a Sunday morning, a church gathering, it's probably a few old people, uh, maybe some small children, but, but really there's nothing happening here that has any bearing on how they live their life Monday to Friday. I was able to spend some time this summer with uh, my now brother-in-law, who probably had that opinion. Well, he did. He had that opinion of religion. Pr prior to meeting our family, he really didn't have a ton of experience with anybody who uh, had been involved in church, been involved in religion. He certainly had never been around people who had, who had deeply held religious convictions. And he met our family. He met me. And he said, hey, here's a normal guy. Like, he didn't know me that well at the time. Uh, here's a normal guy. He seems decently well-reasoned. He seems decently rational, and yet he holds on to these deeply held religious convictions. And prior to that, he, he thought people like me were unicorns, like he'd heard of them but had never met one. And here is one right in front of me. And as we started to have conversations about uh, what we believe, how that impacts our life, how we work that out, it started to slowly shift the conversation for my brother-in-law. 
And that's really the hope of this series as we unpack these questions, that it will start to shift the conversation. And so if you have a Bible, open it. We're going to go right to the Bible this morning. And, and this is going to be a little bit different than the way we normally do things. Normally we go to a passage of scripture. We just teach through a passage of scripture this morning. I'm going to kind of thread the needle a little bit, move back and forth between a passage of scripture uh, and just some kind of big thoughts that are going to come out of this text. So I'm not going to per se teach directly through this text, but I believe some of the things that uh, Jesus says in this text are going to uh, speak into the question that we're seeking to answer. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table here and those are our gift to you. Take them. Uh, But if you do have a Bible, go to John chapter three. The verses will also be on the screen behind me. And I'm going to read John chapter three, verses one through eight. And here's what the text says. Now there was a Pharisee named, uh, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one else could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot uh, enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. This morning, what I want to do is two things. I'll just lay this out at the beginning so you can kind of follow Uh, my line and my train of thought. The first thing I want to do is I want to demonstrate to us that religion is not going away. In fact, the opposite is true. There's a growing appetite for religion, not just in our current cultural climate, but in the world. And then the second thing I want to do is give us two reasons why I think this is the case. So the first point Religion is not going away. There's actually a growing appetite for it. If you go back to John chapter three, and and I want to just point out here for a second, the irony of what I'm doing here, okay? Because it's not lost on me. Uh, There's an interaction that's taking place between a religious man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a very, very religious man. We see this in verse one, where he's identified as a member of the Jewish ruling council. So so in other words, Nicodemus is functionally like one of the leaders in the, the Jewish religion or like church, like the religious institution of the day. For Nicodemus, religion was very, very significant to him. It was, it was a deeply held conviction and belief. Uh, in every way, his life and the religious community and the way of living out his religious beliefs were completely enmeshed. But he has a conversation with Jesus, and, and this is where the irony is going to come in. I'm actually going to use the sediments that Nicodemus uh, unpacks for us to describe the way that the secular people in our current cultural climate are feeling, okay? So, so I, I don't want you to think I don't know that I'm doing that. I am doing that. But here's, here's what I want you to see. Look at what Nicodemus says to Jesus. He, he says to Jesus in verse 2, says, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So, so Nicodemus, who's a deeply 
Jewish man, a deeply religious man, comes to Jesus and he looks at Jesus and he's, he's heard about this Jesus man. He's seen Jesus. He's, he's heard stories about the things that Jesus has done. And Jesus has been teaching. He's been preaching. He's been healing people. He's been performing all sorts of miracles. He's been calling people to a, a new way of living, a new way of life. And Nicodemus is, he's intrigued by this. He sees what Jesus is calling people to, and he looks at the life that he has been living, and he says there's a gap. There's a gap between this, what Jesus describes, or what Nicodemus, or Jesus describes rather as the kingdom of God. There's a gap between this thing that that Jesus describes as the kingdom of God and the reality that Nicodemus is living in. And I think that feeling is actually the feeling that we are starting to see in our current cultural climate. That for so long, we've, we've lived under this rubric or this, this cultural moment where we have been taught that the, the idea of religion is going to go away. But the reality is, as we've kind of pushed this idea of the supernatural belief in God, belief in religion out to the margins, here's what's ended up happening. It's left something to be desired. The way that I like to describe it is, uh, life without some kind of belief in the supernatural. I'm not necessarily going to make a strong case, although I will at the end for Jesus specifically, but life without belief in some kind of supernatural uh, God or some kind of faith in something beyond ourselves, it doesn't make sense of the reality that we experience. Like, like we're looking at the world going, there must be more than just a bunch of atoms bouncing around. This world must be more than just one giant cosmic accident. And in fact, that's the case. That's what people are saying. So in 2015, the Washington Post, a left-leaning publication, ran an article entitled, The World is Expected to Become More Religious, Not Less. And it said this, well, acknowledging that in the United States and Europe, and Europe is in a very similar religious climate to Canada, uh, the percentage of people without religious affiliation, we would describe these people as the nuns and duns, right? They, they fill out on the census under uh, what their religious affiliation is. They say no religious affiliation or done, like as in they're done with church. So the nuns and duns, these would also be what we call the, the SBNR, spiritual but not religious. Again, they're not, they're, they're not ironclad, hard atheists. They're just people who have given up on institutional religion that the percentage of people without religious affiliation will be rising for the time being. The best research tells us that in the world, overall, religion is growing steadily and strongly. Christians and Muslims will make up an increasing percentage of the world's population, while the proportion that is secular will shrink. Jack Goldstone, a professor of public policy at George Mason University, is quoted as saying, sociologists jumped the gun when they said the growth of modernization would bring the growth of secularization and unbelief. That is not what we are seeing. People need religion. In the 18th century, a German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, you've probably heard of him. He's uh, famous or infamous for saying, God is dead. And he looked at the state of the church and the trajectory that the church was on. And he looked at the advancements we were making in scientific knowledge and philosophical reasoning. And he, he deduced that belief in any kind of supernatural would become both unnecessary and untenable. According to what we're seeing, he was wrong. He was wrong. The advancement 
and modernization of society hasn't produced a lack of belief in God. It's actually started to produce a resurgence in it, a need for something to ground us because it feels like we're standing on shifting sand. And so what I want to do with the rest of my time is answer why. Why are people becoming more religious? And and this is a big topic that I don't have time to probably even really scratch the surface on. I mean, there's a number of factors that could be talked about. We could talk about some of the sociological factors, right? Some of the sociological factors are, are simply that religious people, on average, tend to have way more children. I don't know if you were out in the lobby this morning, but like we're outnumbered, folks. Like we are way outnumbered. Uh, we're just socially, social economics, religious people are having way more children than secular people. Secular people tend to have one, if any, children. And religious people on average have three or more. I was at a wedding yesterday where there were a couple of families, I think they had like 13 kids each. Like it was crazy, crazy. But the reality is that's gonna just, religious people are gonna tend to outpopulate secular people. We could talk about a whole bunch of philosophical and intellectual reasons. I'm going to leave all that for another time. And what I want to do is is do a bit of a deep dive into two specific reasons. The first one is this, that as we get deeper and deeper into the world of pure naturalistic secularism, what has happened is that there is a growing awareness that something is missing. This is exactly what we see in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Again, Nicodemus is indeed religious, but when he looks at through the, the, through the lens of religion and looks at the life that Jesus is calling people to, he looks at his own life, and what he ends up seeing is that his life leaves something to be desired, and so he has this deep interest in what Jesus is teaching and preaching about. Well, that's very much the case of the world that we live in. People are starting to look at the world as it's been described to them. You came from nothing. There's, there's no purpose, there's no identity, there's no, there's no reason for existence, there's, no, there's nothing that underpins your existence, you're just a giant cosmic accident. And then they look at the, the lived human experience and they say, that doesn't make sense of the lived human experience, there must be something more, and it's this that is driving people back to religion. It's this sediment that is doing that. Uh, in his book, When Breath Becomes Air, Paul Kalanathi who was a neurosurgeon, or is a neurosurgeon, sorry, and, and self-proclaimed in his book, he, he, he identifies himself as an ironclad atheist. Okay, so we're not talking about Trailer Park Joe from Alabama who's got three guns in his truck and, you know, worships Jeebus. We're talking about a guy who knows some stuff about some stuff. And here's what he says. When I was an atheist, I rejected belief in God on its failure on empirical grounds. It didn't make sense on logical, rational reasoning. Surely enlightened reason offered a more coherent cosmos, a material conception of reality, an ultimate scientific worldview. But the problem with this whole conception became evident to me. If everything has to have a scientific explanation and proof, then this is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, and meaning. A world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. All science can do is reduce phenomena into manageable units. It can make claims about matter, about energy, but nothing else. What science can explain about love What science can explain about love and meaning, it simply reduces these things to chemical responses in your brain that helped your ancestors 
survive. But if we assert, which virtually everyone does, that love, meaning, and morals do not merely feel real, but actually are real, science cannot support that. I concluded that scientific knowledge is inapplicable to the central aspects of human life. Think about that for a second. Scientific knowledge is inapplicable to the central aspects of human life, including hope, love, beauty, honor, suffering, and virtue. In other words, what Kalanathi is saying is that pure secularism, a godless world, it doesn't make sense of the world that he was experiencing. If all of the things that we feel aren't real, then what are we to make of the world as we experience it? I had an encounter once where I was sitting around a campfire with a friend who's a good friend. This is a few years ago. And we were having almost this exact same conversation. And he is not a believer in Jesus nor a believer in any kind of supernatural. He would be an ironclad atheist, a pure naturalistic secular. And I was sharing the gospel with him and we were having a a healthy, robust dialogue around the campfire one night. And I said, well, how does your worldview account for love? And his answer was almost identical to what we just read. He said, love is merely a reaction of chemicals in my brain that elicits a particular emotional response that has been put there by the product of evolution that is designed to help me stay faithful to my wife and protect my family. It's for our well-being. I'm like, those would make some lousy wedding vows. The awkward part is his wife was sitting right next to us. I'm like, so you don't love your wife? He's like, well, I do, but kind of not. At least he was being honest. The problem with that is it doesn't make sense of what we know. It betrays our lived experience. What is it that causes us to look at something and see beauty? What is it that causes us to feel love? Is it just chemicals? Is it not real? It's these kinds of things that that secularism, that naturalism, that a godless world cannot explain that is actually driving people to Jesus, to religion, to belief in God, to, to this idea that this can't be it. There must be something more, which leads right into my second point as to why more and more people are becoming religious. It's exactly that. It's the sense that people have that there is something more. People are asking, is this all there is? Is this life as we know it and experience it all that we can experience and know, is this it? There's a growing sense that people have that there is some kind of transcendent reality, that there's something more, that the the universe that has been posited by secularism doesn't have the explanatory power to identify with how we feel, with what we experience, with what we know, that the universe doesn't give us a sense of identity, it doesn't give us a sense of meaning, it doesn't give us a sense of purpose, Because pure secular, pure naturalistic secularism is a purposeless universe. 
I mean, I think all of us on some level have had experiences that have stirred in us these feelings of awe and wonder, where we've looked out at the beauty of creation, or we've, we've experienced the birth of a baby, uh, or we've been at a wedding and we've just felt, I don't know if you get this at weddings, I cry at weddings all the time because there's just something about that moment that is sweet and you, or you feel love for your child or you're sipping a coffee on your back porch and it's just quiet because you got a whole bunch of kids and you just get this breathe moment and you have this kind of sense of awe and wonder. This is what Charles Taylor uh, describes as a feeling of fullness where this moment is just surged with purpose and meaning out of nowhere. Uh, this summer, we traveled uh, back to Calgary. Our family did three times. My mother-in-law is sick, and so we wanted to go back to see her a number of times. And uh, it's a long drive. We The best time I was able to secure, uh, and this one I didn't get pulled over at all, was 13 hours and 15 minutes. Okay, so that's a long day in the car. In order to pull that off, we would leave really early. So when we were coming home, we would leave at 4 o'clock in the morning, get in the car, pile our kids. We've got four kids, and we would just drive uh, from Calgary back to Victoria. And we'd get through Canmore and into Banff, and we would start to roll into the foothills of the Rockies. And it was like, I don't know, about five o'clock in the morning, and everybody was asleep. And the sun would just start to crest over the horizon. And I remember many times on that trip, on those trips, just in awe. I remember driving next to a mountain, and there's uh, like a, a lake that is like bluey green and the sun is just bouncing off it. And in that moment, you feel small. I mean, I I forgot about the cancer that my mother-in-law has. I I forgot about the work that was piling up uh, back home because I'd taken the majority of the summer off. I I forgot about the fact that our basement had an inch and a half of water leaked into it because our washing machine leaked while the person who was house-sitting for us uh, was there. Like I just forgot about everything because I was struck by all. The Bible describes this as a worship moment. I had this moment where I just worshiped the living God. It was a transcendent moment. It was a moment of fullness. It was a moment of awe and wonder where I realized there must be something more. Do you ever have moments like that? Why do we have moments like that? If if the secular story is true, then you came from nothing and you're going nowhere and the universe is a meaningless place. How does that make sense of your lived experience? But the Christian story, the story of Jesus, tells a different story. It says that you were made in the image and likeness of God, that he, that, that he made you to reflect what he is like. And not only did he make you, but in the beginning of God's story, that as it's told in the Bible, we, we actually get this picture of God who, who enters in, makes you intimately, but breathes his very breath into your nostrils. And that the human was actually made by God and the human was actually made for God. And these transcendent moments as we experience them, those are actually moments that are designed to connect us to the one who made us, to the one who knows us, to the one who loves us. 
And I would contend, I would argue that it's those moments where we are actually more fully human. That we don't have to explain them away. We don't have to pretend they don't exist. We need to embrace those moments. And the, and the reality is the secular story can't make sense of them. The, the naturalistic narrative doesn't make sense of so much of the lived experience that we have as humans. And it's this that then presses people to run towards some kind of belief in a God, in a higher power, in something supernatural. Because they know that there's something more. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, take a look there. So there's this interaction that's taking place between this religious man, Nicodemus, and Jesus. And again, Nicodemus being this religious man who's looking at this life that Jesus is calling him to and saying there must be something more because the life that Jesus is calling people to, the life that he's seeing Jesus live is, is so far greater than the life as he's experienced. There's this gap. There's this gap that exists between what he knows and what he's seeing Jesus experience. And then look at this conversation. We've already read it, but we'll go back through it. Jesus says in verse three to Nicodemus, as Nicodemus comes to him and questions him about who he is and what he's calling people to, Jesus says, in verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Look at Nicodemus' response. Verse 4, he said, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus said, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. In other words, Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about. What does, it, what does it mean to be born again? Like That's a pretty reasonable question in light of what Jesus has said to him. I don't understand what you're saying. And then Jesus unpacks it. He explains to Nicodemus what this means. Verse 5, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of both water and spirit. Verse 6, and this is the verse I want to hone in on. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus here in verse 6 is saying exactly what we have been saying. That the flesh, your, your purely natural uh, human experience, uh, human reality can't make, sorry, your, your purely, the purely natural understanding of the universe can't make sense of the human experience because it's not the totality of who you are that you are more than just a bunch of atoms bouncing around. You're more than just a bunch of neurons. You're more than just a, a slightly more evolved primate. There's something more significant to you. And this is what Jesus describes as the spirit. This is when he talks about the spirit, he's talking about the reality of a transcendent God, a, a God who knows you and who loves you, a God who has breathed his very breath into you. And apart from the spirit, you can't actually make sense of the human experience, apart from the reality of a God, the presence of a God, apart from knowing God, you can't make sense of everything that you are going to experience as a human being. And so what does Jesus say? Look at what he says here, verse 7. He says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. What does he mean? He's saying, when you live your life, and you have these moments, these sliver moments where you know that there is something more, those are pointing to a greater reality. So, see, what Jesus does here is he takes the obscure and he makes it very particular. 
he says it's not enough to just believe in like some sort of new age quasi spirituality. He says, all of those moments are actually pointing to me. They, they make their most sense when you understand who I am. Because what he's saying here when he says you need to be born again is he's saying there's something broken in the way that the human condition is as it stands. That our first birth was not enough, but we need to be made completely new so that we can experience what it fully means to be human. And what Jesus is describing here, what he's unpacking for us here is this reality that there's a brokenness that exists within humanity where we've all rebelled, we've all rejected God, we've all turned away from him. And so what we experience as human beings is not the fullness that God created for us. The language the Bible uses to describe uh, this reality is uh, there's a particular word called sin and sin simply means missing the mark or, or not living the way that God intended us to live. And what Jesus is saying here is that because of our brokenness, we don't get to experience the fullness that God has for us. But if we would humble ourselves, recognize that there's more to this world, that there's there's more than just pure existence. If we would humble ourselves and come to him, come to Jesus, we can actually be made new. We can be born again. Jesus says, if you want to experience what it means to be fully human, You need to come to me. You need to believe in me. There's this this beautiful reality in the story of God whereby we we see this picture that is laid out for us or this story that is told for us where, where God starts with a world that is good, right, and perfect. And people actually walk with God, but humanity rebels, walks away from God and experiences the brokenness, the brokenness rather that you and I are experiencing today. But that God through his grace and in his kindness is redeeming the entire world back to that place. He's restoring it back to the way that he always intended it to be. And when you come to Jesus, here's here's what happens, friends. God in his grace and his kindness, piece by piece, he begins to restore the human. Piece by piece, we get to experience a little bit more of the fullness of what it means to be a person who was made by God and made for God. It doesn't happen in a moment, but God starts to take people on a journey, on a trajectory with him, whereby he restores us. I'll give you an example. Uh, Just this past week, I was uh, talking to somebody who, um, who had a relative who had started coming to West Village Church. They've been here for about a year and a half. And this person had actually brought their friend, uh, their, their relative here, rather, and brought them here with the sole purpose of them meeting Jesus. This person was in a bad place. Their life was not good. Their marriage was on the rocks. Their family was falling apart. And they came, and this individual had an encounter with Jesus, had this kind of transcendent moment as we were singing, as they were listening to the, as he was listening to the teaching gave his life to Jesus, started to follow him. This is, like I said, about a year and a half ago. And just this week, I saw the friend or the the relative who brought that person here, pulled me aside and said, I I just want to thank you. She said, I I have the privilege of kind of seeing things from the inside out. And this person still has a long way to go. They are not perfect, but they are made new. 
They are different. They are changed. They are transformed. And, and I know the person very well, and it's a, a journey, and it's a trajectory that they are on, and it's, a, it, it's this moment-by-moment moment change and transformation that is taking place. But what is happening in the life of that person, what happens in the life of a person when they come to Jesus, when they are born again, is that fullness that life is supposed to be about starts to take root in a person's life. And eventually what happens is you start to look more and more like the way God intended you to look. You start to experience more fully what it means to be human. And so what Jesus is saying here to us and what I think makes the most sense of all that we've been talking about this morning is this, is that the secular narrative doesn't make any sense of our lived experience. And while belief in a God, belief in the supernatural, it's a, it's a good thing. It makes sense. I understand why you, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, why you would have some kind of belief in a supernatural God, some kind of belief in a, in a God who loves you and knows you and who's out there somewhere. You might, you might have some kind of personally held belief, something you made up, maybe something you inherited from your family. We're going to talk a little bit more about what those beliefs look like next week. But don't miss what Jesus is saying here. While those beliefs are good and they make sense in light of the lived human experience, what makes the most sense is Jesus. So, so when you feel these moments of awe and wonder, when you experience these moments of grace, when you get this sense that there's something bigger out there, that's actually God's grace in your life letting you know that Jesus is calling you to himself. It's like an invitation from him. He is the form of which all the shadows are cast. All good things that we experience are intended to be pointers to who he is. And, and so, so my hope for you, I'm, I'm not going to make a hard sell for you to give your life to Jesus this morning. That's not what I'm going to do. I, I trust God will speak to you as he sees fit. But, but here's my invitation to you to ask the question, ask the question, what do I really believe? And is Jesus the answer? I'm going to invite the band to come up as we close. One of the things we do uh, here at West Village uh, every week is we have what we call a time of response. Uh, so we will sing, uh, some songs, I'll come up and speak, or somebody will come up and speak, and then we have what we call a time of response. In other words, we're going to respond to what we just talked about. And in that response time, we do a number of things. We, we sing, uh, so we're going to sing some more songs. We, uh, we have 
uh, an opportunity for people to give. And if this is your church, then we encourage you to give as Jesus gave. If you're new or just visiting or just checking things out, then don't worry about it. But we also have a time of uh, what is called communion. And the way communion at West Village works is we have two stations at the front, one at the front of each of the aisles. And at the front of each station, you're going to find a couple people standing there holding some uh, baskets or, or uh, some containers. And one will have a cracker and the other one will have wine or juice, whichever is your preference. And you simply take the cracker and dip it in the wine or the juice and you eat it. But what's significant about this is what this moment represents. Because it's not just a cracker and it's not just wine or juice, although it is physically just those things. But Jesus instructed us to take communion, to do these things, to remember him. In other words, these are a picture of Jesus laying down his life. We read earlier out of John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that Jesus actually laid down his life for us. So, so think about this with me for a second. In light of what we've been talking about, this is what the, the Christian story, the Jesus story tells us about the way that God works and the way that our world works. God experienced the complete fullness of everything we've been talking about. These little moments of fullness that we experience in our day-to-day lives, these moments where we, we kind of come alive, these awe and wonder moments, God knows what that feels like perfectly, completely amplified, as loud as it can possibly get, because that's who he is. And Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is God himself, God with flesh on, he left that complete fullness and entered in to the brokenness of this world. He came into what we know to make us, give us, allow us to have the ability to experience fullness. So, so in other words, the brokenness that, that we experience, Jesus enters into that brokenness so that we can experience the fullness that he gave up. You see, the way the Apostle Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that, that in Christ, in Jesus, God made him who knew no sin, who knew no brokenness, to become our sin, our brokenness, so that in him, in Jesus, when we come to Jesus, We can experience the full righteousness, the full fullness of what it means to know God. And so when you come forward to take communion this morning, here would be my encouragement to you. Only come if you can say in good conscience, I believe that. You might be visiting, you might be here for the first time, just checking things out. If, if you feel like that's not something I'm ready to say yet, that's okay. There's, there's lots of people here who are in that place. And just stay in your seat, sing with the band, sing with the rest of us. But, but maybe this for you is actually a bit of a climax moment where you've been on a journey You've been on a journey where you said, you know what, there must be something more. Uh, I believe in something. I'm here. I don't know why, because I like the people. I like the singing. I like the community. 
There must be something more out there. Maybe this morning, that's something more. It went from obscure, went from vague, became very specific. And you recognize that it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And we invite you to come and take communion with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you allow us to experience the fullness of what it means to be human. That in you, we are not left alone. We are not left uh, to figure things out by ourselves, but that you actually are shouting to us. You're speaking so loudly to us. You allow us to experience these moments where it is just so clear that you are real. And so, Lord, I I pray for those of us who've known you for a long time, that in those moments of awe and wonder, we would just see them as opportunities to worship. We would not grow cold to them. Um, But for those of us who are here, and, and we're just on a journey, we're just trying to figure things out. Maybe today, Lord, you would answer some of the questions that we have. Maybe today you would, as you have so many times before, to so many of us before, just show us what is real.